All right, you guys. I'm Scott. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Here on the Liberty Radio Network. For the last, I don't know how many years, man. Missing a couple in there. Anyway, uh, yeah, Liberty Radio Network, uh, noon to two Eastern Time. LibertyRadioNetwork.com, uh, LRN.FM. My website is ScottHorton.org for all my stuff, including the chat room. Oh man, I forgot the chat room, dude. Alright, uh, yeah, man, join up the chat room. It's an IRC free node chat. Um, ScottHorton.org slash chat. You can break right in. You know what? I don't even need Chatzilla. I'm just going to go right here, and then I'm going to break this window off over here. And it's going to be great. Um, yeah, man. So, uh, yeah, my show, it's libertarian foreign policy mostly. That's basically the deal. Uh, and I interview journalists. I, I do my own complaining, but mostly I uh, try to get good people on to... Uh, Tell you what they say. Uh, in this case today, that's going to be the great Patrick Coburn. And it's also going to be John Schwartz, who, man, I haven't talked to John Schwartz in I don't know how many years, dude, but I like that guy. So we're going to have John Schwartz on the show because he wrote a thing. I'm interested in it. Uh, I think you will be. And then also John Pfeffer is going to be back on the show again. To um, to talk about the DPRK again, because who else is good on Korea? Not too many people, but John Pfeffer is. So that's today's show, man. Um, Coburn on uh, Syria, of course. John Schwartz on uh, Iraq War Two, and John Pfeffer on uh, Korea. Oh, yeah, I do have Cotter to talk about, don't I? Um, yeah, quite a bit of news to try to cram into a segment and a half here before we get to the interviews today. Um, well, I don't want to get too far into the facts because that'll be the Schwartz interview. But uh, Trump was confronted by a questioner who turned out to be some kind of talk radio show host or something, I think. Um, some kind of right-wing goofball. But uh, Trump was uh, confronted by him at a uh, press conference yesterday and said, I can't believe that you said that George Bush lied us into war, that he deliberately said things that weren't true about weapons of mass destruction. Oh, my goodness, that hurts my feelings so much, he said. And then Anderson Cooper helpfully read the quote back. They had no weapons of mass destruction. They knew they had no weapons of mass destruction. They went anyway, whatever. So Trump refused to uh, repeat that part of it, uh, which I think is unfortunate um, because it kind of takes uh, the wind out of the sail of uh, people getting back into this fight over whether or not they lied. And you know what? There's some tales to tell there. John Schwartz coming up on the show. The important part to me is that Trump went on to basically repeat everything he had to say about the Iraq war except for uh, the part where they deliberately lied us into it. He dropped that. And, of course, it came out yesterday. He told Howard Stern on September 11, 2002, Stern said, should we attack Iraq? And he goes, yeah, they should have finished the job the first time. Yeah, I guess so. 
although he, I think, credibly claims that he had changed his mind by the time of the start of the war because he came out against it just like a week into the war or something like that. He called it a complete and total disaster. And that's when everyone who was for it was saying, just wait, it's going to be great. So I think it's pretty credible that he had changed his mind before the war started. Um, It's funny to see people talk about how that's impossible. Oh, he was for it before he was against it. Yeah, before it ever started, so... Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm not defending Trump. I just prefer facts to a bunch of crap. That's all. But anyway, here's what's important. The facts that he then continued to rehearse. As he put it, basically, everything wrong in the world is because of that. He said to the crowd there, because you know a lot of these people are still under that impression. He said to them, Iraq did not knock down the towers. Iraq did not do that. They were not the ones. Okay? Blend, let's get that straight, all right, for people who are still confused. And then he goes on to explain how everything that's happened since then, as far as the spread of terrorism throughout the region and the rise of the Islamic State and the rest of it, is because of George Bush's, as he put it yesterday, as Donald Trump put it yesterday on CNN, the worst decision of an American political leader in our entire history, he said. Now, I would say Woodrow Wilson takes the cake on that, but then again, it remains to be seen, doesn't it? Uh, We're still living the consequences of Woodrow Wilson's bad decision-making back in 1917 right now, from 99 years ago. Um, And it's absolutely clear, and it's been clear since 2003, at least, that the consequences of this invasion are going to be reverberating for generations and not just the invasion but staying oh we can't leave now or the violence will get worse which means they gave the shiites the capital city which is the first time the shiites have ruled an arab capital city for a thousand years and not that i'm saying i you know in and of itself prefer one way or the other or anything like that i'm not saying that i'm just saying the sunni rulers of the region are refusing to accept that. And they will continue to fling suicide bombers at Baghdad from now until your great-grandkids' you know, lifetime is over. It took the American Army and Marine Corps to kick all the Sunnis out. It would take them to start the war all over again to repopulate it halfway with Sunnis again or anything like that. It's just going to go on forever. That's just one example. You know, the the final breaking off of the Kurds and, and uh, the dissolution of Syria the the uh, fall of uh, nationalism in North Africa, all of this is because of the Iraq war. And Trump just, you know, he, he didn't apologize, but he backed off the part about how they deliberately lied. He said, well, look, I can't know exactly what was in his head, but I know what he did was the worst decision in American history ever. And he basically crammed it down that dude's throat. And the thing of it is this, he's right. There's just no disputing it. And I take special pleasure in this, seriously, in seeing, because see, to Donald Trump, it doesn't matter whether they're arguing about the Iraq war. This happened last week. I I might repeat myself from yesterday. It doesn't matter whether he goes to South Carolina, the most militarist state in the union, other than New York, I guess, and uh, attacks George Bush, attacks the Iraq war that South Carolina fought in, and still believes in as of day before yesterday, attacks their senator, Lindsey Graham, 
And people are saying, oh, my God, dude, what is he doing? How can he do this? But the thing is this. It doesn't even matter that those are the things. The Iraq uh, war, the Iraq decision-making on the part of Bush, Lindsey Graham and all his warmongering, that's not really what counts, right? Look at it through the third dimension, as Scott Adams says, as a master persuader. All that's really happening is Trump is barking louder. And Trump is saying, no, I am the alpha dog. I define you. You don't get to define you. I define you. That's what George W. Bush used to do, right? Give everybody a nickname. Make sure they were all lower than him. Just so everybody knows, I'm higher than you. I'm going to call you dummy from now on. Dummy Dan. Dan the dummy. Uh-huh. That's what Trump does. And he goes, you know what? The Iraq war, it, it doesn't matter that they are all so invested in it this whole time. I mean, think about the man hours spent arguing for the Iraq war by the Jacksonian populist right wing in America. And Trump says, no. I'm smarter than you, I'm bigger than you, I'm tougher than you, that's why I'm your leader. And it works, and they follow him, because they're apes too. We're all a bunch of stupid-ass apes. And so they follow him. I mean, it's a marginal thing, Not it doesn't work on everybody, but it sure as hell works on enough. And it doesn't matter that he's, it's, it's even better that he's attacking their most sacred cows. But then, so what's the effect? They have to give up the consensus for Iraq War II on the populist right, rank-and-file right, is finally broken. Because their leader says, you'd have to be a dumb ass, especially now looking back, to be for that war. And they don't have a damn thing to say because Trump ain't Michael Moore. And he ain't Ron Paul, as he says. He's as militaristic as hell, just smart on this. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, all Scott here. The thing is, I need you guys to help me to get these download numbers up. So do me a favor and sign up for the podcast feeds of this show. You can choose the whole show or just the interviews at iTunes and Stitcher. All the buttons you need are at the top of the right margin at scotthorton.org. The more subscribers I have, the more iTunes and Stitcher will help promote the show to new listeners. If you're a hardcore fan, brand new or from way back, please leave them customer ratings and reviews, too. Trying to get these wars ended. All right, you guys, welcome back. For anybody who doesn't know me, this is no endorsement of Trump, all right? I'm as anti-Trump as anyone. I just, I love watching him bully people because, well, I don't like him watching, I don't like watching him bully Mexicans and bully Muslims and, you know, shooting down at the politically powerless. I don't mean that. I mean, I love watching him bully Jeb Bush. And I love watching him bully Lindsey Graham. Did you see the quote about Lindsey Graham? Lindsey Graham, he's a disgrace. He's pathetic. He left at zero percent. Zero. Something. He's barely a human at all. <laughs> just, I don't know. Just, just stomped him into the ground with his boot. No mercy whatsoever. And the thing is, yes, I'm childish and hateful and terrible, just like him in different ways. But, um, so I, that kind of bullying appeals to me when it's the powerful picking on the powerful. It just makes it great. 
And it bothers me when people are picking on the weak in the on the uh, politically weak. As far as that goes, I don't, I'm not for that. In fact, my natural reaction now that I'm sort of an adult at 39 is the same as yours. Oh, that's mean. I hate the way he bullies people. You know, that's how you feel that. And then you realize, no, it's Jeb Bush that he punked. Again. Give me your lunch money. Yes, sir. And it's George Bush's son and brother. <laughs> you know? It's it's Jeb. And then, but this is the one that really gets me. And I'm not really taking a side so much in this. I mean, on the issue, well, it's kind of a fun one, isn't it? I'm an atheist, so I don't believe in any of this. Who's a Christian? Who's not? Whatever. I don't, what a weird pissing contest to get in for me. I don't care about that. But for the Pope to say to Donald Trump, you're not a Christian if you believe in building these big walls between people and all that instead of spreading brotherly love around the world or whatever. I think I would agree with that. From what I know of Jesus, and you're supposed to follow his teachings and that kind of thing, I think he would probably be opposed to the wall. And that uh, the Pope's really got a point there. I don't know about you're not a Christian, because that's kind of a different question, whether you claim to believe um, and all of that as an individual. But that's not acting Christian, something like that. That's a great point. On the other hand, he's calling out millions of American conservative Catholics and saying that they're all not Christians either, since they agree with Trump on the border wall. Virtually the entire American political right agrees on the border wall. And I'm just guessing, I really don't know, but I think it's probably more than half of American Catholics would identify themselves as conservatives more than liberals, right? Maybe I'm wrong about that. but I very much doubt it's the majority are liberals. I think they are mostly conservatives. And um, so there's that fun aspect to it. And then so Trump comes out and goes, oh, yeah, well, when ISIS sacks Vatican City, I guess you'll be sad that I wasn't the president all along because I would have protected you. But you're helpless without me. <laughs> and and I can't believe it's disgusting that a religious leader would would uh, pronounce someone as as uh, not a believer like that or whatever. And then look, the Pope backed down. The Pope backed down. The Boston Globe just put it out. The Pope's comment about building walls wasn't singling out Donald Trump, Vatican says. Uh, really? What kind of political BS is that? Just go look at the quote. It was specifically about him, and he used singular pronouns and everything. Don't lie to me, Pope. But anyway... I think it's funny because I agree with the Pope. And I think it's funny that the Pope backed down to Donald Trump. He could have just... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he could have done. Ignored it or just said, Oh, no, I'm sure he's a Christian and everything, but that's not a very Christian position to take or something. But this is him backing down. That's something else, man. I don't know how he does it. It's like when he's, when he's uh, in the debate and he says, Jeb Bush, you're a weak, pathetic half of a man. And then Jeb Bush goes, oh, come on. <laughs> like, what is he holding a, a shiny coin in front of his eyes or something? Okay, and now you say, oh, come on. I don't know how he does it, man. Or I kind of, I, I, no, I don't know how he does it. 
I sort of kind of get it. It's like knowing you're watching a magic show and trying to not be distracted. Keep your eye on the other hand, but you still don't get it, you know? How in the hell does he make the Pope back down? Anyway. Well, what the hell? I try to find humor in these uh, subjects where I can get them, that's all. Hey, guess what? Omar Cotter is free. And he's staying free. Canada drops bid to retry uh, or to, to return Cotter to prison. He's out on appeal. And I think if I read this right, it's done. The The higher court said, oh, no, it's still pending his U.S. appeal of his conviction sentence. So I guess he could go back to prison at some point, although he's going to stay free for now. And then, you know what? The longer this goes on, the less likely he is to be re-kidnapped and, and, uh, and put back in prison. They're under a deal where he's serving his time in Canada under a U.S. conviction, but the conviction was a plea bargain to a crime that he didn't commit. That is not a crime in the first place, even if he had committed it. Now, we all know there's no such thing as the rule of law in America, only politics. So it remains to be seen uh, whether you're the Bill of Rights will kick in, whether any judge would enforce it and go ahead and clear them at this point. But it's right there in Article 1, Section 9. They can't make up a law after you supposedly did something and then charge you with breaking the thing that they just invented as a crime. No ex post facto laws. It's right there. It's Article 1, Section 9, I think, Clause 3. Okay? So... Um, defending yourself from invasion, being a civilian who defends himself from an invading army is not a war crime. And by the way, our government's story of what it was that Omar Khadr supposedly did that day as a 15-year-old boy left in the custody of some Taliban by his father in Afghanistan. Uh, not Al-Qaeda guys, Taliban guys, local guys, uh, is complete nonsense they tortured him and threatened to rape and murder his mother unless he would confess to the dumbest scene out of the a-team that the guys interrogating him had ever seen where he supposedly single-handedly shooting these guys and then pulling the ring from the grenade with his teeth and chucking it back over his head over the wall and all of this like some old vietnam war movie or something and then, oh, he killed a medic, except the medic was toting a rifle and firing it as part of Delta Force. They make it sound like, oh, and then he butchered an innocent civilian. First of all, there's virtually no reason whatsoever to believe that the Delta Force medic soldier who was killed that day was killed by Omar Khadr. And secondly, even if he was, is a simple case of self-defense on the battlefield. And there's nothing in the law that says that's a war crime, except a bunch of ex post facto made up nonsense and by the way the brutality that omar cotter suffered uh means that he's more than done his time for you know him and every other canadian at this point for anything they've done go watch the documentary you don't want the truth and you'll see it's you don't like the truth this part of the scott horton show is sponsored by audible.com and right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. 
Get the free audio book of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Show. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show, etc. Introducing a star witness to the slow motion train wreck of American Middle East policy. The best reporter we got, Patrick Coburn, from The Independent at independent.co.uk, author of The Rise of Islamic State. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. How are you? Fine, thank you. Very happy to have you back on the show here, and... Uh, and happy to read you. Uh, you're you're one of the few who can make sense of the mess going on in Syria right now. So I guess my first question would be, uh, what of the ceasefire, uh, so-called ceasefire, arranged between the Russians and the Americans? Well, you know, there isn't a ceasefire in Syria, and there isn't likely to be a, a full ceasefire. Uh, and the arrangement that they made actually excludes uh, Islamic State uh, and al-Nusra. Um, and uh, so since they are the two biggest armed opposition groups and uh, control about half the country, much less the population, but a lot of it's desert or semi-desert, um, that means that uh, fighting is going to go on. But I think it'd be, you know, one can be um, too skeptical. I think it, what is important was that this meeting uh, in uh, Munich on, uh, I think it was the 12th of February, uh, you had the U.S. and Russia uh, saying, one, that uh, convoys would go to these besieged cities, which does seem to have happened, and secondly, that uh, there was going to be this uh, partial ceasefire. What's important here is that the two sort of biggest military powers in the world wanted this have clout in Syria. Um, and when Assad said uh, he wanted to fight for a complete victory, then a, some senior Russian official immediately came back saying, no, we're not backing that. Uh, so what's important is that the guys who organize the ceasefire, even if it doesn't actually turn into a, um, even a 50% ceasefire, are really influential. They do have the clout. These are what used to be called the superpowers. Well, now, okay, I guess it's pretty easy to see, you know, how much influence Russia has over the Syrian government. If if Putin wants Assad to do something, then he's pretty much going to do it. We saw that with the chemical weapons. but And, and of course, we know that America has been training up these so-called mythical moderates, whoever they are, for years and years here. But how much clout does America really have over which factions? They don't even seem to have clout over their allies in in Riyadh and Ankara, much less the proxy armies. Yeah, they kind of want to. Yeah, it's kind of you know the, the Turks would like to invade northern Syria, so with the Saudis, they'd quite like to do that if the U.S. Um, doesn't want it. Um, I suppose they might go for it, but uh, you know what the U.S. has been trying to do is seal off northern, basically seal off northern Syria. They wanted to do that with the Turks originally, but Turkey was letting uh, supplies. Uh, 
into ISIS-held areas, volunteers going there, oil out of ISIS areas. So eventually the U.S. sort of was doing it with the uh, Syrian Kurds, sealing off the border from the Syrian side rather than from the Turkish side. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, you know, one of the reasons it's a great mess is the U.S. is kind of doing this, you know, really what it's done since 9-11, which is it sort of wants to do something to the jihadis, to ISIS, to al-Qaeda-type organizations, but it doesn't want to quarrel with its big Sunni allies, notably Saudi Arabia right. and Turkey. Mm-hmm. And so, how many uh, Saudis, I mean, there are various reports of Saudis sending some kind of field army to bases in uh, in Turkey in preparation for something, but that just doesn't really ring true. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're sending planes. You know, Saudi policy is kind of pretty crazy at the moment with Prince Mohammed bin Salman, this young prince who sort of seems to dominate his father, the king. They've started this war in Yemen, which isn't going too well. Uh, they executed this uh, Shia uh, religious leader earlier in the year. Um, now they say they're going to get involved in an invasion of Syria. This is pretty crazy stuff. You know, well, what Saudi Arabia has is money. Well, there's less of it these days with the price of oil down. But when he gets involved in operational things like air wars and so forth, things never go so well. Yeah, I mean, they're getting uh, beaten even in Saudi territory by the Houthi rebels in northern Yemen right now, right there on that border region, seems like. Yeah, they got sort of, in, you know, they've sort of got involved in this. I mean, in Turkey, the same thing, you know, that they talk really tough. President Erdogan talks, you know, about really sticking it to the Kurds. And that's the real enemy. It's not Assad or ISIS or anybody else. It's the Kurds they're after, particularly the Syrian Kurds. Mm-hmm. Um, and But they don't really do much. And but their sort of policy is kind of, uh, they make it up on the day or on the week. You know, they shot down this Russian bomber uh, last November, which wasn't a great idea because the Russians sent more planes and anti-aircraft missiles. Now Turkey would quite quite like to move into, send its army to move into northern Syria, but then now they're facing all these Russian planes, so they can't get air supremacy. Mm-hmm. So if they if they did want to move into northern Syria, it was a really bad idea to shoot down that plane. And yeah, yeah, I could see uh, that being a tactical mistake for their strategy. But now, so when you say that, um, I mean, it's pretty clear too that um, that uh, Assad is second place to the Kurds in. Uh, the sites of the Turkish government there, but I wonder how distant of a second place is the Assad government? Are they? The, is the Turkish government past their goal of regime change at this point in Damascus? They go on repeating like this, like a sort of demented parrot, so to the Saudi, to Saudi Arabia. No, it's perfectly obvious Assad isn't going to go. You know, um, the uh, the government isn't going to go. You know, they control most of the population. They're backed by Russia and Iran. Their army's advancing. Why should they go? But they don't seem to have a policy. You know, one way of looking at this is, you know, things have, have, you know, at the beginning of the war, I guess you had local forces in 2011 deciding what happened. Then you had sort of regional forces from about 2012 to 2014, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the Gulf Monarchies, uh, Iran in a rather different way. But they never, I mean, they wanted to overthrow Assad. They failed, you know, they, um, ISIS developed... And then it's now it's got much more sort of internationalized with the the U.S. and uh, Russia playing a much bigger role, and 
the regional powers aren't quite so powerful. Um, so, you know, that is changing. I think, you know, the, I mean, the prospects of something happening are positive, have gone up a bit, I think, mm. because we don't just have the Turks and the Saudis saying, uh, you know, we want to overthrow Assad and pretending that these jihadi organizations are moderate when they're not. Well, am I reading the uh, the Democrats right when, you know, John Kerry is, is kind of laying out the plan here that they mean to have a, a peace at some point in the, you know, somewhat near-term future between the mythical moderate groups and Assad and then everybody from there is supposed to turn on al-Nusra and the Islamic State or well, fight them all at you once? Well, it's sort of it's even more complicated than that because who... You know, you have al-Nusra, but then you've got these other two groups that the Russians wanted to uh, say were also terrorists, which is Arar al-Sham, which is close to al-Nusra, and uh, uh, Jaysh al-Islam, which is kind of east of Damascus, uh, sort of basically financed by the Saudis. Uh, They're both sort of extreme uh, Sunni fundamentalist uh, uh, organizations. Um, The problem, you know, for the U.S. and American allies is that if they allow these to be uh, labeled as terrorists, then, you know, they don't have any moderates left. Right. Uh, but also, you know, it's kind of hypocritical, all this. You know, you watch television, you see in the newspapers that the Russians are only banging moderates. Nobody ever says who these moderates are or where they are, you know. And why? Do, if, if those substantial parts of Syria are run by moderates, uh, why don't uh, journalists go there, you know? <laughs> and right. why do they sit in, sit in Turkey or sit in Beirut? Because the reason is very simple. Is if they know if they actually turned up there, you know, they'd be in the boot of a car in 10 minutes. They'd be kidnapped, you know, because these guys aren't so moderate. Yeah. All right, hold it right there. We've got to take this break. All. They're not moderate. We'll be right back, y'all, with Patrick Coburn from The Independent, author of The Rise of Islamic State, right after this, independent.co.uk. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, all Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, you guys, welcome back. Darn commercial messages interrupting our show here. Um, Scott Horton uh, talking with Patrick Coburn, the great Patrick Coburn from the Independent, independent independent.co.uk. This uh, latest piece here is called The Winners and Losers Are Becoming Clear in This War, in This Syria War. Uh, Great piece, and again, uh, he's the author of the book, which you got to read it, The Rise of Islamic State. And, uh, yeah, where we left off, uh, Patrick, you were talking about the the kind of irony. The, the It's kind of funny in a way to see people like Jeb Bush say, you know, protest, all of them, the politicians and the media, everybody, the D.C. consensus that 
those darn Russians. How dare they bomb anybody but ISIS in Syria? Which they just leave this huge omission where we know what they mean is Al-Qaeda. They're mad because Russia's bombing al-Nusra and Arar al-Sham, which are both loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, right? Sure, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of absurd. The, um, and uh, in Britain, they want the government would identify the moderates, but that might uh, put them in danger. <laughs> They're meant to be 70,000 of them. They're meant to be armed, you know. <laughs> well, what makes them so shy? And, uh, you know, the government's so shy because they don't really exist, you know. Yeah. The, um, you know, you have guys on the ground in Syria, you know, some village militia, some local warlord, you know, somebody pays them some money, they might uh, uh, join up. But that's why you have these sort of endlessly different groups, you know, they're all sort of small gangs. And uh, But uh, to describe them as moderates is absurd. Well, and even back in 2012, they said, well, look, the Al-Farouk Brigade, they're moderate, they want elections. But then that was their commander on film eating a dead soldier's heart. So, yeah, so yeah, much for I mean, that. This is sort of, uh, you know, this has happened from the uh, beginning. Um, and, but the, 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 now things have changed, you know. The the Russian intervention last, uh, on 30th September last year, that means the Syrian army has its sort of air force, just like the Syrian Kurds have got the U.S. air force. And that puts a lot of pressure on uh, ISIS. Um, and... Uh, you know, so they they're losing their connection to the uh, the Turkish border because they always were very dependent on being accessed and uh, uh, through Turkey. Um, and so I think that ISIS is getting weaker at this within sort of Iraq, Syria. Mm. Of course, they'll pop up. They're popping up elsewhere in Libya and uh, so forth. Have they completely uh, lost Aleppo at this point? Uh, Aleppo, you know, is sort of there are different groups there. Al Nusra is quite strong there. Um, Al Nusra, you see, you know, you have local groups that are not Al Nusra, but often that's operating under under license. You know, you know, it's it's a bit like the mafia supposedly used to operate. You know, you might that you have lots of people who weren't necessarily part of the mafia, but they only operated, you know, under license. Yeah, sort of like the al-Qaeda in Iraq was the under license as a smaller faction of the larger Sunni-based insurgency during Iraq War II. Yeah, and it sort of, so these, um, you know, uh, and also they know that, you know, you can't, it's difficult to have Turkey or Saudi Arabia or Qatar give weapons directly to uh, al-Nusra because the um, the Americans, the Russians might object, but it's much better if you let some other organization down the road continue to exist. Um, uh, and then that gets the Tar missiles, whatever it is, and they hand them over to you. Right. In fact, uh, uh, just so, yesterday, so Patrick... There's a pretty, pretty practical reason why Al-Nusra w- w- would want these other groups to go on existing. And also, you know, they sort of... Uh, you know, they just move into, they're close enough to, they kind of are our old sham and others are much different. They just sort of don't put up their flags and close to the uh, Turkish border where Western television can see them. You know, they put up our old sham flags instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're quite sort of clever about publicity. They know, they know it would be a bad idea to sort of 
uh, have all these Al Nusra flags within sight of a lot of uh, television cameras. Mm. Yeah, that's funny. The the modern groups basically is just kind of different names for the arms acquisition part of the Al Nusra front. There's a quote from the State Department spokesman just a day or two ago where he said, the reality of the situation in both Syria and Iraq is that equipment and various weaponry, while given to the good guys, sometimes end up in the hands of the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not just sometimes, you know, there's a continual flow. Um, but, you know, now, you know, the last sort of corridor really linking the opposition uh, uh, north of Aleppo to Turkey is sort of under attack at uh, something called the Azaz Corridor. Uh, the Turks are havering. Do they want to get involved or not? How far will they get involved? On the other hand, if they don't do anything, then they can see their whole policy in Syria since 2011 turning into a disaster. They've got half their southern frontier with the, uh, run by the Syrian Kurds. Uh, so they're tempted to do it. Will they do it? We, you know, we don't know. Uh, what they'd like to do would be sort of edge the U.S. into getting involved, but I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. All right, now, you talk a lot in your book about the the Saudi donors, the kind of private and pseudo-private Saudi donors who have supported the Islamic State um, and on this front to a degree. And I had found this great quote from Prince Saud al-Faisal um, in... Uh, uh, the Financial Times, where he had told John Kerry, Dash, that's the Islamic State, is our response to your support for the Dawah. And, of course, Hillary, Hillary Clinton is in the... Yeah, the, I mean, that's uh, the way the Saudis look at it. And has that changed at all? Because, of course, the, the current narrative is that, well, yeah, the Saudis were donating to some extremists, but we made them stop now. I see uh, the Brookings right. Institution I mean, guys I couldn't that. prove the opposite, you know, but it's the nature of money. But when you have guys as tough as Islamic State, you know, is it likely they're going to be confined them, spend a lot of energy trying to tax the local vegetable market and not try to uh, get money from sympathizers, rich sympathizers in uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Kuwait and elsewhere? It seems to be very unlikely. Mm -hmm. So this sort of, as a sort of consensus, this isn't happened. Uh, I'm among foreign experts. In, in, if you go to uh, uh, Iraq itself, there's a... <laughs> Uh, or Syria, there's a consensus the other way, that yeah, these guys quite certainly are getting money through donations and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, well, you know, what Syrians and Iraqis think about this is probably true. Yeah. And did you see the uh, Nancy Youssef piece about the Bada Brigade fighting in Syria, where we're backing them in Ramadi against the Islamic State, but then we're backing the rebels, uh, the so-called rebel groups uh, like Arar al-Sham against them in Syria? I didn't see that one, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, but it's always been um, the case, you know, of sort of um, a different policy in Iraq from Syria. Yeah, it's really amazing. Now, I've seen uh, another piece that said that the Iraqi army, the Shiistan army, is building up forces currently in Kurdistan preparing for a joint assault on Mosul. Uh, do you have any idea when that, when or if that might come? I'd be a bit dubious. I was just in uh, Kirkuk um, and in KRG. Um, I didn't see much sign of that. Um, you know, the Mosul, uh, the Iraqi army, despite all this talk about having taken Ramadi, you know, still has its 
its very limited number of uh, combat troops down at Ramadi. Uh, the Kurds don't want to uh, get involved in an assault on Mosul, be caught up in uh, street fighting and so forth. Uh, and also there are other problems. You know, one looks at this in some political and military uh, uh, terms, but the price of oil being down means, you know, the, the Kurdish government's got no money. It's not they can't pay uh, people on the government payroll. You know, that's one of the reasons so many of them are desperate trying to reach Europe. So there's a real sort of economic calamity there. Um, it's difficult in those circumstances to, uh, you know, if you can, can't really pay your own troops to launch a, an attack on Mosul. Mm. At the same time, ISIS is getting weaker there, you know, just been in touch with a lot of people who just left Mosul and they were saying it's getting, you know, there's very little electricity, clean water, prices are very high, there are no no jobs. Uh, And they also say ISIS is getting uh, crueler and sort of nastier um, in in enforcing uh, regulations, you know, that they sort of, uh, women being sort of wearing not only, you know, these... um, uh, a full robe, but also uh, uh, gloves and socks and everything else. And if they don't, then the man with her gets lashed and uh, so forth, uh, or they get attacked. Um, and they say it's, this is getting more vicious, particularly from the Saudis and uh, Libyans who are um, ISIS uh, members. Um, they do have a way of wearing out their welcome, don't they, these Al-Qaeda and Iraq types? Listen, I could uh, keep asking you questions like this all day, but I will let you go like in the deal. I sure appreciate you coming back on the show, Patrick. Not at all. All right, y'all. That, that is a heroic Patrick Coburn from the independent, independent.co.uk, and the book is Rise of the Islamic State. We'll be right back with John Schwartz in just a minute. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment, and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop. Which is, by the way, what he's doing right now. Selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Alright y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton, it's my show, Scott Horton Show. Up next, it's John Schwartz. Now writing at the intercept, before that he had this great blog, Tiny Revolution, it's still there. It, man, it's good. Tiny Revolution. And uh, now here he is uh, writing with Greenwald and them over at the intercept. This one is called Trump is Right, 
Bush lied. A little known part of the bogus case for war. Welcome back. John's been way too long since we've spoken, sir. I agree. It's been a long, long time. And the funniest part of it to me is that we are still talking about exactly the same thing. I know. Isn't it funny? Well, here's the thing of it, though. Um, I recommend you all the time, actually. Uh, you come up in context because uh, in the not very thick catalog of people who are really good on this issue, you're right up there at the top, especially like if I knew somebody had to be able to answer the questions right off the top of their head on CNN or anything like that, I would turn to you first. I know you know this case as well as anyone about, well, as you say here, no, really, they lied. They weren't just wrong. They lied. But So I guess I would I would uh, turn the floor over to you with one qualification, which is try to pretend or assume that everyone listening is somebody's Republican uncle and that you really got to make this case to people who mean well, but boy, are they still caught up in the deception from back 13 years ago. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that for sure. And I should also say that this is a complicated story, which is why it was so easy for the Bush administration to lie about it. And if anybody believes that I am not explaining it clearly, feel free to email me. I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has about this. So for Republican uncles, the first thing I would say is this. Everyone is right to be suspicious of claims that the Bush administration lied, because the Bush administration didn't say stuff that was too much different from the Clinton administration. And so there's like chain emails that go around all the time where they list all the quotes from members of the Clinton administration, other Democrats and stuff like that, talking about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And everyone says like, well, so obviously everybody was mistaken. It wasn't that Bush was lying. It was that everybody was mistaken. What I would say is that Republican uncles and everybody should understand that there's another possibility, which is that everyone was lying, the Democrats and the Republicans. Now, it is the case that the Republicans lied a little bit more enthusiastically. They told some lies that were more egregious. And most significantly, they started an entire war based on those lies. Like, I would say for sure that Bill Clinton lied about Iraq. But in his defense, which comes uh, very hard for me because I'm not a big Bill Clinton fan, in Bill Clinton's defense, he didn't start a war. He just lied. So that's a smaller offense. Well, he did bomb the hell out of them, and including Desert Fox. And he did support the war in 2003 and told David Letterman, oh, it'll be easy. It'll take two weeks. So let's not let him too much off the hook. But go ahead. Yeah, see, so I'm, I'm with you completely on that. As I say, not a big Bill Clinton fan. So with that preamble, I would encourage everyone who has even a little bit of an open mind about this to look at the story of Hussein Kamal who was Saddam Hussein's son-in-law. And Hussein Kamal was one of the most important people after Saddam in the Iraqi government. He had, in fact, been in charge of the very, very real uh, nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons programs that Iraq had in the 1980s, when Saddam having all that stuff was totally cool with us because he was using it on Iran and he was using it on Iraqi Kurds in the north. That was perfectly fine with us. And then when he invaded Kuwait and uh, 
we ejected him in 1991, it became part of the terms of their surrender that Iraq would give up all of its unconventional weapons of mass destruction programs. So that's 1991. And Iraq clearly was not coming completely clean in 1991 when the UN inspectors arrived. They had a lot of standoffs. They were not telling the whole truth by any means. But the UN inspectors worked very, very hard, and over the next couple of years, they uncovered pretty much everything uh, they thought at the time that Iraq had done during the 1980s. And in 1995, Hussein Kamal defected to Jordan. And he did that because, really, he hoped that the United States would uh, stage a coup, invade again, uh, and put him in charge of Iraq instead of Saddam. So he was not a good guy. But... What he did in 1995 was tell the UN and the IAEA, the people who are in charge of uh, nuclear weapons, and the U.S. and British intelligence what he knew about Saddam Hussein's WMD program. And nobody knew it better than Hussein Kamal. Now, in 1995, we did not have the debriefing notes. Uh, what we did know was that he went on CNN and said, Iraq has no weapons of mass destruction. So he said that in 1995. Okay, so fast forward to 2002. The Bush administration has decided it wants to invade Iraq. Dick Cheney, in the first speech about why we were going to war in August of 2002, brings up the same Kamal. And this is what, this, uh, what Dick Cheney said about what Kamal had claimed in 1995. We now know that Saddam has resumed his efforts to, to acquire nuclear weapons. We've gotten this from the firsthand testimony of defectors, including Saddam's own son-in-law. All right. So, in 1995, Hussein Kamal has said, Iraq has nothing. It has no nuclear weapons program. By 2002, Dick Cheney had stood that truth completely on its head and said, we know they have a nuclear weapons program because Hussein Kamal told us that they did. And the most extraordinary thing about that is that it, that didn't even make any sense. Like it happened in 1995. There were still inspectors in the country. If Hussein Kamal had revealed that in 1995, then the inspectors would have gone and dismantled the nuclear weapons program. So it didn't make any sense. But the U.S. media didn't notice that. It also was completely transparently false because the IAEA itself had public documents on its website saying that Hussein Kamal had told them all nuclear weapons-related activity had effectively ceased in 1991. So this was just a blatant, brazen lie by Cheney. And again, the question was not, was Hussein Kamal telling the truth, or had Iraq restarted WMD programs after 1995? Neither of those were the question. The question was simply, what did Hussein Kamal say in 1995? That's something Dick Cheney knew. That's something the U.S. government knew with 100% certainty. It wasn't a question of hazy intelligence and different conflicting opinions. Everybody knew the answer to that question, and Dick Cheney lied about it. Yeah. And then the rest of the U.S. government, including Bush, Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, they went on to lie about it, too.
All right. Well, we're going to get to that on the other side of this break. And I'm saying this not for bragging, but just to bolster your testimony, because it's just true that I watched Dick Cheney's VFW speech in August of 2002 live. And when he got to the Hussein Camel part, I started cursing and throwing stuff at the TV because I had seen Hussein Camel, Kamel, whatever, on CNN myself in 1995. I knew what he said myself before Dick Cheney even told that lie. I'm sure you did as well, and I know a lot of other people did as well. It was on CNN. But I'm just saying this is not that underground of information or anything. This was for people who didn't want to buy in to this narrative and and had a bit of skepticism, it was pretty easy to see through what was going on at the time. I think that's a Yes, that is true. Yeah, absolutely. If you've been paying attention, you could tell. But apparently no one in the U.S. government or the U.S. media pays attention. Yeah, well, very few anyway. And, of course, there's the legend of Lande and Strobel at Knight Ritter and how, you know, they published all their stuff in, you know, the Kansas City Star and the Miami Herald and everywhere that people in New York and D.C. couldn't see it and wouldn't have cared anyway. But they debunked this all for Knight Ritter newspapers. Um, Aluminum tubes and more with John Schwartz on the other side of this break. Check him out at The Intercept. Trump is right. Bush lied. Hey, Al Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back. It's my show and things. I checked during the break. The only audio that CNN has for their Hussein Kamel story is him saying, oh, yeah, we had daydreams about making nuclear bombs and ICBMs and all this stuff. And then the next question is, can you state here and now, does Iraq have any weapons of mass destruction left? Answer, no. Iraq does not possess any weapons of mass destruction. I'm being completely honest about this. And then the next question is about torture, and then they got the audio for the torture question, too. Does Saddam Hussein torture people? Yeah, of course. So, anyway, but no audio of, I'm telling you, man, I was in charge of destroying it all. And by the way, uh, the disgraced Scott Ritter, let it be said, still he wasn't lying when he pointed out, a U.N. inspector at the time, and he explained on this show years ago, that um, Saddam Hussein completely panicked. When Hussein Kamel defected to Jordan and that he handed over to the U.N. every scrap of paper, he ordered his government, you take every scrap of paper you could possibly find because he was so f- afraid that Hussein Kamel would have turned over papers or he had hidden them on his farm, I guess, but told the inspectors where to find them, that maybe he had turned over papers that Saddam hadn't already turned over. So he said, return over everything again, because he didn't want to get caught at all. It was a complete panic on his part, and he was just fessing up. He had his hands up. He already got everything. It was all destroyed by the end of 91. Yeah, that's true. And by the end of 95, after Hussein Kamal had defected and the U.N. had gotten all of these documents, Iraq really had come completely clean. It had nothing left, and nothing changed between 1995 and the U.S. invasion, as and we know. And by the way, tell, tell us about the um, dossier that Saddam gave to the United Nations in the end of 2002 there. was That was basically the same thing again, right, where he was just saying, look, here's everything I got? 
Yeah, if, if you go back and look at the news coverage in the United States, when Iraq made its you know, final full declara- declaration of its WMD programs, everybody was like, how preposterous. Iraq is saying exactly the same thing that it said back in 1997 and 1998, that they don't have anything at all. Yeah, and Bush and said, we course- know what disarmament looks like. Bring all your weapons that we know you got to the parking lot, and then we'll blow it up or something like that. So if yeah, they're not doing exactly that, they're right. not telling the truth. Yeah. Well, now, so, so tell me this, John, though. I'm sorry to interrupt, but what about, and there's a whole giant narrative here. I know you've uh, heard of it and grappled with it before, that, um, well, he was trying to scare Iran. So he was pretending that he was making nukes and that he did have chemical and germ weapons still. Um, and unfortunately, he bluffed Iran into an American invasion. Yeah, that's right. That is a story which is just as made up as the idea that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. If you go back and you look at the uh, final CIA report, which is like a thousand pages long, they spent literally a billion dollars on this uh, to report in the end that Iraq had nothing. There is no evidence for that. There was no strategy of Saddam Hussein to bluff us. And if you ever talk to anybody about that, ask them, what exactly is it that Saddam was doing? Like, what precisely were the actions that he took in order to bluff Iran? And there is no answer because he didn't do anything to bluff Iran. Iraq wanted the sanctions removed. It wanted to prove to the world that it had no weapons of mass destruction. They said it over and over and over again. Uh, it, It... was not a bluff. It was just them telling the truth. Yeah. Well, you know, um, one of the things that got me back then, uh, which I think is still a big deal. I, in fact, I think, you know, you could call it the soundtrack to a very important broken relationship in my life was me saying, look, they're talking about the aluminum tubes again. When they'd already been debunked, and yet I had to say this virtually every day because they just kept talking about the aluminum tubes, and it's driving me out of my mind for literally five, six months in the run-up to the war because the Washington Post had done the debunking. It was the top headline on antiwar.com, but in September, you could even find it on the Wayback Machine. In September of uh, 2002, the Washington Post did a story that was probably published on page 43 or something like that in the paper version that explained how there's one guy in a weird offshoot office of the CIA who believes in the aluminum tubes are for nuclear weapons story, but no one else at CIA and no one at the Department of Energy and none of the private think tanks, I don't even think they got David Albright to pitch in. I think even David Albright debunked the aluminum tubes, and they just pushed on anyway, pretending that these tubes that were for artillery rockets must be for some massive uranium enrichment program hidden somewhere in Iraq, John. Yeah, that's right. And they were debunked over and over again. But as you say, it was like on page 27. And back then, that really mattered. Uh, It's much, much harder to hide things than it used to be. Uh, I guarantee you that there was some kind of fight within the Washington Post. And the reporter on that story was like, look, I think this should be on on page one. Like, this is incredibly important. And then the people who really run the Washington Post were like, yeah, I don't really see it as a page one story. I think we'll put it back here. And because of that, it was possible for 
that lie to last up until Colin Powell's presentation at the UN. Like he talked about the aluminum tubes at the UN. And not only did he uh, talk about them, we know for a fact that Colin Powell himself personally knowingly lied about them. Colin Powell said, uh, you know, like, I think it's pretty strange. They claim that these are for rockets. I think it's pretty strange that these are manufactured to a higher tolerance than any rockets that the United States makes. Well, Colin Powell's own intelligence staff had told him, and this is completely public now, you can look it up on the internet, had told him, look, no, 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 that's not true. Like, the U.S. actually has rockets very much like this. Colin Powell completely ignored that, went on to say it in front of the entire world, and got his war. And weren't they buying them from our allies, the Italians, in the first place? If I remember correctly, I think they were. So it was not like a super secret, fantastic plan on the Iraqis' part if they had wanted to use the aluminum tubes for a nuclear weapon. It's just amazing. Well, and here's one of the most important ones. Saddam kicked the inspectors out. We don't know what's going on there. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. What actually happened, uh, you mentioned uh, Operation Desert Fox in 1998. Uh, Clinton had bombed Iraq. And before bombings like that, uh, the U.N., understandably, would take their inspectors out because they didn't want their inspectors to be bombed. And after this really large-scale bombing of Iraq, Saddam Hussein said, look, we're not going to let the inspectors back in unless there's some clear path to a declaration that Iraq has, in fact, been disarmed, which we now know was not an unreasonable request to make because Iraq was disarmed. So Saddam did not kick out the inspectors. The U.N. removed the inspectors because America was bombing Iraq. I think Clinton even actually gave, his government even gave a warning that you better get your inspectors out of there because the bombs are about to drop on the record. I think there's a good chance that that Clinton himself, that that may be the case. There's a very good case that that Clinton wanted the inspectors out of there permanently because they were scared that they were going to say Iraq is disarmed, which the United States did not want to have happen. Well, as Andrew Coburn has reported, I believe for the first time on this show, actually, that uh, Rolf Eckius from the United Nations, uh, UNSCOM, what have you, in 1997, they were actually prepared to issue an official statement or official report certifying Iraq as weapons of mass destruction free. And then Albright preempted it with her statement that, oh, yeah, the sanctions aren't about weapons of mass destruction anymore. The sanctions are about regime change and they will stay in place until Saddam Hussein is gone. And then, you know, that had thrown a big wrench in the works at the U.N., I guess, bureaucratically. And so the official statement never came. But they were prepared to give it in 97. That's right. And in case, like, the, the, uh, who, was, who was the head of UNSCOM for uh, most of his life? Uh, the people who are in charge of the inspections. Uh, he said that now. He also said in 2000, after the inspectors were no longer in Iraq, that they felt that they had fundamentally disarmed the country and that there were a few question marks left, but it was not anything that was particularly significant. Mm-hmm. So the people who knew the best, the people who were in charge of UNSCOM doing the inspections, they knew that Iraq was disarmed. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Rice and who knew Colin Powell had knew. said the same thing in the spring of 2001, right? I mean, yeah, not specifically he, to the oh, weapons of mass destruction, but they they said, ah, yeah, don't worry about Saddam. We got him all contained. 
yeah, both both Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice uh, were saying, like, listen, don't worry about Iraq in the beginning of 2001. And just something I should say, if uh, in case we're running out of time, is that what everybody should understand about the Iraq War, the reason why the Bush administration was willing to lie so much about it is, as everybody has figured out now, it never had anything to do with weapons of mass destruction. The United States didn't care what Iraq had. We wanted to invade for other reasons, and nothing was going to stop us. That's the whole thing about it. It was the legal technicality, and they even explained, you know, Tony Blair's got a real problem with his lawyers. Around here, we just ignore him, or we just have Alberto Gonzalez or John Yu write up something. But over there, his lawyers are saying, we have to make this some kind of violation of a U.N. resolution or something, or else we're afraid we'll go to prison. So they have something like a rule of law over there. I don't know. Like Tony that, Blair that's right. is free I, right I, now, I, so... It seems ridiculous uh, to us here in the United States that they care about following the law, but they did. That's why the, the weapons of mass destruction issue was important to them. Yeah. And in fact, one of the, the top lawyers in the Tony Blair government resigned before the war because they did not believe it was legal and were uh, concerned about their own reputation and, and perhaps their own freedom if they were to participate in the war. Yeah. All right. Listen, we are over time. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, John. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, too, and hopefully we'll talk again sometime about something else. Yeah, hey, I got your new email address, so that's going to happen. Okay, right on. All right, cool. Thanks very much. Bye. All right, y'all, that's John Schwartz. He's at The Intercept. Uh, there's a lot more to this article, of course, and a lot more to the story, uh, of course, that we were unable to uh, discuss in the short amount of time we have. But this is really worth a look. Trump is right. Bush lied. A little-known part of the bogus case for war. And we'll be right back with John Pfeffer in a sec. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Colin Powell closed the deal today in your mind for anyone who has yet objectively to make up their mind? Uh, I think for anybody who analyzes the situation, uh, he has closed the deal. This irrefutable, undeniable, incontrovertible evidence today, Colin Powell brilliantly delivered that smoking gun today. Colin Powell's outstanding today. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it was lockstep. It was so compelling. I don't see how anybody at this point cannot support this effort. He made a wonderful presentation. Yeah, I thought he made a great case for the purpose of disarmament. It was devastating, I mean, and overwhelming. Overwhelming abundance of the evidence. Point after point after point, with, he just flooded the terrain with, with, with uh, data. It's the end of the argument. Phase. America has made its case. The Powell speech has has moved the ball. I think case is closed. All right, enough. Sorry, guys. Um, running a little behind for this segment. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I went over time with John Schwartz. You'll be able to find that in the archive at scotthorton.org later on. Uh, but next up, it's our friend John Pfeffer from Foreign Policy in Focus. He runs it. He's the I don't know what he's called exactly, but he's the runner of Foreign Policy and Focus. That's at fpif.org, uh, Institute for Policy Studies. And where in the world is my link? 
I lost it, but it's about the DPRK. It's right around here somewhere. Darkness at high noon in Korea. You know, I don't like the sound of that, John. Welcome back to my show. Great to have, great to be back on. Uh, well, I'm very happy to uh, talk to you, and especially about Korea issues, as always. You have insightful things to say, but this is all just bad news. Although you're pretty kind of sunny guy to be talking about the sunshine policy, so maybe we'll get a little bit of silver lining out of you here, but uh, what's your worry? Well, uh, I think most of your listeners are probably aware of what generally what's been happening. We had a fourth nuclear test from North Korea uh, back in 2015, the end of 2015, and then more recently another long-range missile test that um, maybe or maybe not put a satellite into orbit. Uh, and as a result, the international community has again applied another round of sanctions against North Korea. That includes the United States, which passed uh, legislation pretty unanimously in, in the Senate and the House, which the President signed, another round of sanctions. But the more serious issue, from my point of view, is what's happened between North and South Korea. Uh, South Korea, in addition to sanctions and negative uh, rhetoric toward the North, finally canceled the one last project that connected the two Koreas, and that was called the Kaesong Industrial Complex. And it's an industrial complex that was located just north of the demilitarized zone in the North Korean uh, city of Kaesong, and it employed over 50,000 North Korean workers in, in about 125 factories run by South Koreans, produced a lot of stuff on sale, mostly in South Korea, but beyond what it produced, it was mostly important as a symbol uh, of continued North-South economic cooperation. And unfortunately, uh, South Korea basically shut it down. And so it's just domestic politics in the South or what? I mean, everybody... Everybody doesn't want to have a real war, so why ratchet up the tensions when they could try to de-escalate them? Well, it's a good question. I mean, it's especially because it's it's Park Geun-hye, uh, the South Korean president, who has, uh, since she took office, basically promoted a kind of engagement policy with the North. Not, not a, a full-scale one, but a kind of reasonably... Uh, half-hearted attempt to restart um, uh, kind of relations between North and South after five years of a very, very conservative uh, anti-North uh, policy coming from Im Young-bak, previous uh, leader of South Korea. And Park geun came out with this kind of article on foreign affairs calling for trust politique, uh, a kind of uh, we'll you know, work with you if you're willing to work with us kind of policy. And, you know, there was some indication that that trust politique was moving forward. There were some uh, divided families reunions, in other words, reunions of families divided by the Korean War. Um, there was some humanitarian aid shipments to the north. There was talk of restarting a number of different tourism projects. Uh, unfortunately, I think Park Geun-hye was isolated within her party. Uh, within the conservative party in uh, South Korea. And I think she felt that she had to really demonstrate that she was not going to be pushed around. And, you know, part of it is her being, you know, a conservative that has to 
you know, emphasize her credentials. And part of it, I think, is being a woman as well and indicating that she, as a woman, is not going to be pushed around. Um, so I think there were a number of factors. Uh, there was probably some pressure as well coming from outside South Korea. I mean, the Kaesong Industrial Complex is not exactly a popular project outside of, of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, the United States, for instance, you know, bent over backwards to prevent any kind of products produced by Kaesong Industrial Complex from entering the United States and put pressure on its allies to do the same. Uh, and there was basically no other interest from any other countries in investing the Kaesong Industrial Complex. Well, so, why is that exactly? Just for business reasons, for cronies, or because they hate any kind of sunshine at all and they want the Cold War with the North to continue forever, or both? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, in general, it's it's been kind of a risky proposition to invest in North Korea. Um, a number of countries and a number of countries have seen uh, companies rather have seen their investments uh, basically disappear, either as a result of simply bad uh, investment decisions or because the North Korean government decided it, it ultimately didn't want to work with that. Uh, partner. So that's one reason why there's been reluctance. I think another reason is, again, because of free trade agreement regulations. Any country that has a free trade agreement uh, with South Korea, um, there was additional scrutiny, again, this is pressure from the United States in part, to ensure that any products produced in Kaesong um, would not be labeled as South Korean products and therefore would not be subject to um, a preferential trade treatment. So that meant that, uh, you know, anything produced in Kaesong was not going to be treated like a South Korean product, and it was going to be more difficult to sell it. So I think that also is a reason why uh, companies and countries didn't want to invest in Kaesong. And then finally, I think um, there might have been some, you know, political decisions as well. In other words, as you said, a decision that, you know, they country or company simply did not want to have uh, engagement with North Korea on its record, um, that that was a stigma that it wanted to avoid. Yeah. Now, so here's the thing. Ever since Nixon went to China, pretty much everybody agrees that, hey, that was the right thing to do, man. Why have a Cold War with Russia and China when you could just have a Cold War with Russia only? That makes sense. Maybe not mm -hmm. have a Cold War with anybody, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so... That argument has actually prevailed in the case of Cuba, which is, you know, giving up a lot less, I guess. You know, well, I don't know. It's giving up more, really, than North Korea, because obviously Cuba's right off the shore, and there's a lot more uh, so-called American, uh, you know, nationalist pride wrapped up in the Cuba issue, that kind of thing. But we can go <laughs> ahead and say, ah, you know what, let's begin at least to try to let bygones be got bygones with Cuba. And yet <laughs> that same... You know, again, consensus, right? Ever since Nixon and Kissinger, this is a consensus that this is the way to take on totalitarianism is engage them and mm -hmm. show them, you know, how great it can be to get rich and this kind of thing. And yet they mm -hmm. they won't ever do that with North Korea. And I guess, see, mm -hmm. we're, the music's about to start playing, John, and so I'm not going to be able to give you enough time to answer. <laughs> so when we get back from this break, can you imagine that, me actually looking at the clock and... Sort of, kind of timing out the segment correctly, not really. Uh, yeah, on the other side of this break, we're going to let John Pfeffer from Foreign Policy and Focus, FPIF.org, uh, answer my question as to what's up with that anyway.
I want engagement, man. I want the Harlem Globetrotters to go back to North Korea and stay there until everybody's friends. Darkness at high noon in Korea, fpif.org. We'll be right back after this. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, y'all, welcome back. Hear me. My button is messed up. There it goes, I think. All right, you can hear me now? Good. Hey, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I got John Pfeffer on the line. He's from Foreign Policy and Focus, and he wrote this thing, Darkness at High Noon in Korea. Of course, we still don't have a peace deal left over from 1952, just a ceasefire. And um, now they've even closed down the Joint Office Park. I think you say they shut down the hotlines. The North uh, retaliated by shutting down the hotlines between the two countries and this and that. So my question before the break, John, uh, was what is Washington, D.C.'s problem here? And then uh, after that, I've got other things I want to ask you, too. Okay. Well, you brought up both China and Cuba as examples of where the United States has, has promoted engagement, economic engagement in the past with countries that it might have geopolitical or political differences with. And, and that's absolutely correct. But the numbers are very different than the case with North Korea. So, for instance, with China, we're talking about the potential of a billion consumers, a billion buyers of American goods. And that was an incredible incentive in the 1970s uh, and, and had been previously. I mean, for the, for the better part of, of 100 years, American the businessmen had imagined what it would be like to have Chinese market at their disposal. Um, so that that pushed detente with China, in addition to the, the possibility of, of having a, a split between the two major communist powers at the time, Russia and China. With Cuba, of course, the Cuban market is, is not anywhere near the size of uh, the Chinese market, but... Already there was a strong push coming from the American business community uh, to have some kind of a rapprochement with Cuba, largely because uh, Cuba was a major potential market for agricultural supplies, agricultural sales. And so uh, we saw individual states already making economic deals with Cuba before the Obama administration even decided to, to make an, uh, an overture to uh, Raul Castro. So in both cases, in both the case of Cuba and in China, you had strong push from the business community. With North Korea, you have no push whatsoever. First of all, we're talking about a very small population of about 25 million people compared to what's a billion people in China. And we're talking about absolutely zero connection right now between the U.S. business community and North Korea, plus no imagination from the American business community about what they could do in North Korea economically. So I think that's a major difference. Uh, between uh, what we had with China and what we're currently experiencing with Cuba and the situation in North Korea. Yeah. Well, I guess that makes a lot of sense. But then, on the other hand, they got fission bombs. I mean, I don't know how well they can deliver them or how far or even how well the damn things work. But still, that's a pretty big reason why we could advance the ceasefire one more step to a peace treaty. Why not? Come on. It's not like we got to give them the store. Uh-huh. 
I would agree, uh, but that's not the perception here in Washington, D.C. The, the perception in Washington, D.C. among policymakers is basically uh, the United States tried to sit down with North Korea to negotiate uh, on its nuclear program. Uh, it attempted during the Clinton administration and achieved an ideal, in some sense, on the plutonium side of things, but North Korea reneged and went ahead with its uranium side of, of developing a nuclear weapon. Tried again under George W. Bush, same more or less uh, end to that particular story. And then finally, even with the Obama administration, around the Leap uh, Day Agreement, and that North Korea again kind of decided only a few days afterwards that it was going to go ahead and, and test its long-range missiles anyway. So the perception here in Washington is, hey, we tried in order to neutralize North Korea's nuclear program, and North Korea was not interested. Now, I wouldn't agree entirely with that narrative. I mean, I, there are elements of truth there, of course, but there's also in any number of examples in each of those three, the Clinton, the Bush, and the Obama overtures, where the United States was basically not negotiating with full good faith. Uh, would we be able to get some kind of, kind of an agreement with North Korea if the United States said, okay, look, we're going to honor our side of the bargain as well, I think there's a good possibility. Uh, and that should motivate the Obama administration to do that. But I don't think it's going to do it in his last year of office, because that's probably a bridge too far for a president who has a number of other items on his legacy agenda. And like you said, who has no real domestic political um, you know, incentive to make that a priority at all. But, you know, yeah. it's really unfortunate because as you go through the list, obviously there's a lot of, uh, as you said, uh, a lot of places where caveats could be included in their side of the story here, the war party side of the story. Um, but most especially, it seems to me like the way that the Bush thing fell apart was such an obvious uh, USA fault type situation where it was what Christopher Hill went over there and had this deal and they were going to take him off the terrorist list and they took the Yongbyon reactor offline. And then Bush came out and I think it, I forget now exactly, John, but help me out. Maybe um, didn't Bush just put him back on the terrorist list for no reason. Or he did some other thing where he just broke the deal. So obviously, and, and regardless, I'm right overall, whether my specific detail there is wrong, but my point being that then that would be a great, it could have been a great way for the Democrats to, you know, for Obama to have this for part of his legacy, that this is a place where Bush failed and make it a partisan thing. This is a thing that the Republicans couldn't do, but he could. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. Well, uh, Bush didn't actually put him back on the terrorism list, but he didn't uh, follow through on some of the other, in some cases, unstated expectations that the North Koreans had. And that was largely around um, uh, moving toward some form of uh, political rapprochement, um, and that just didn't happen. And uh, partly it was it was opposition within you know Congress to any kind of effort by the administration at that time. Partly it was uh, a an expectation that it would be picked up by the Obama administration when it came into office uh, in 2009, and and that didn't happen either because the Obama administration immediately ordered a kind of uh, reappraisal of North Korea policy, and that year, essentially, uh, in which nothing happened, was taken by the North Koreans as an indication that the United States is simply not interested in following up. So some of it was just, you know, 
uh, lack of good intentions on our part. Some of it was the the craziness of our uh, democratic political process. When I say craziness, it's craziness from the point of view of the North Koreans who simply don't understand why we don't have a unified approach. Mm. And part of it was dropping the ball going from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. Um, and so there's lots of bad blood between you know the, the two sides, simply on the diplomatic end, and not to mention all the other stuff that, in our history, bad blood between the two countries. Nevertheless, I do think it is possible for the Obama administration to at least get the ball rolling so that a subsequent administration would have a kind of a the ground laid for some kind of, of return to the negotiating table. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It seems like it'd be easy enough, too, when you look at you know, the the degree to which the ice was broken just by sending Madeleine Albright, of all people. I mean, I guess it was her job at the time, don't get me wrong, but still, just sending her to engage in some cultural things, um, you know, that made a world of difference. And when, um, when and it, we talked about this at the time, when, uh, oh, what's his name, uh, took the Harlem Globetrotters over there, and that's a great way. In fact, I just saw Globetrotters game over the weekend, a part of one. They're great, man. That's a great way to begin. You know, I would say the North Koreans, you guys can have a team in the NBA. Let's do that. What, what do we got to do? We have so many carrots to offer that don't cost us anything to be able to get along if we had someone who was really or some people who were really interested in peace, uh, you know, in charge of making these decisions. Absolutely. But, I mean, you can imagine, you know, what kind of a uh, political backlash would ensue in this election year, uh, given what the kind of dynamics are in Congress, if President Obama were to even make the, the, the slightest gesture of good faith toward North Korea at this moment. Now, that's why I say publicly it would be very difficult. Um, and, and I don't think the, the president is going to try to jeopardize you know, his party's standing at this yeah. point by doing that, in the same way that, that Bill Clinton didn't make that trip to Pyongyang. That was scheduled at the end of 2000, um, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of, uh, right before uh, George Bush. In the off. same but, way that Hillary Biden and Kerry voted for the Iraq War. Politics. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's a shame. And, and, of course, the flip side of it being they could have been heroic to stand against it, and they could have done great politically if they'd done the right thing. Same with Obama and the Afghan surge, and any of these times they cave on these terrible policies. They could win by doing right, but they won't. That's John Pfeffer, FPIF.org, darkness at high noon. Thanks, John. Thank you.